Hello and welcome to the IOTICS podcast. Here we're talking to inspiring humans who are not just doing things differently, but doing different things to make their world, and by extension ours, a better place. We'll explore how they are bringing people and technology together to solve complex challenges today. My guest today is Ian Gordon. He's doing data things in the built environment, working on major projects like Taiwei and for Highways Agency and Network Rail and the Houses of Parliament. It was a really insightful conversation where Ian explores complex ideas like induced demand and the difference and cycle between tacit and explicit knowledge, and indeed the difference between data and technology and their impacts. But most of all, he spent some real time trying to understand his own frustrations and the challenges in the industry and how we can overcome them. I think as you listen to Ian, you get a real sense of his hope about what might be possible as we work together and the impact it can have without over-promising some tech utopia, but recognizing there are real steps that we can take today. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did and do look out for Ian uh, in conversation at events because he's really, really done the work on this, exploring why and what he feels and how it can be remedied. I hope you enjoy. I think it's easy to whiplash between techno-utopianism and despair, and I've definitely spent plenty of years doing that. We, we, we live in a time where technology is everywhere. I mean, that's such a redundant statement, but, you know, we're literally seeing it transform in front of our eyes. You know, our, our experience of consumer products in particular has, is transformative you know, if I could describe to my young self that I carry around a jukebox that has basically every song <laughs> ever recorded in it, you'd be so excited. Like, you mean I don't have to go to the record shop and listen on those little headphones to the latest release and then buy the CD and there's actually only one good song on it? I can just listen to that one good song and then every other song that I want to? Like, And then you go into work in this with, with all that in your head uh, and... Certainly when you're working on the built environment, it doesn't always, well, it's never that immediate, right? Yeah. There is progress, but it doesn't feel like we're making the same level of transformation. It doesn't necessarily feel like we're keeping up with other industries. I'm sure I'm definitely not the first to say that. Uh, and there is this question of how much am I, are we actually making a difference here? Because a lot of the outcomes of programs, particularly large programs, appears to be relatively consistent they they get done but they're over budget they're behind schedule they don't always give people they don't always live up to the billing that they come with <laughs> right um and and that's kind of bothered me in that i i, I want to feel like i'm excited about technology i'm excited about data in particular i want to feel like we have something to add to actually make the outcomes of the built environment work better for people because a lot of you can you can have a successful career in this industry, winning projects, building stuff, possibly over time, over budget, and, and not necessarily think, is what I'm doing actually contributing to the outcomes that society needs? I think that that purpose-based bit of it, you know, it not just being, okay, well, it's happening and, and this is how it always is. You know, it's always over time. It's always mm. over budget. That's just the way the world is. Um, 
is very powerful. But you didn't start out in data and digital and technology, right? Not particularly. Did a geography degree. Knew I wanted to work in the built environment. I think it felt tangible to me. I wanted to do something tangible, right? right. I was always fascinated with how society fits together. You know, I was a kind of Sim City kid or a <laughs> Civilization Two kid. Yeah, uh, Sid Myers, what a hero! Exactly, and um, I wanted to feel like I I could find a place in that. Unfortunately for for me, the job I got was acting as a QS, and that was didn't quite align <laughs> to my skill set. Yeah. But what one part of QSing is you get to play with a lot of numbers in spreadsheets. So, you know, I was kind of okay at the spreadsheet thing. And I've managed to somehow parlay that into a reasonable, if not incredible career in data and talking about data and trying to help uh, particularly built environment infrastructure organizations make sense of data and, and what they should be doing in that space. And that that is tremendously exciting to me. But there is every now and again a moment where you're like, am I just getting paid a salary to generate noise here? Mm. Or is there actually something of substance behind what we're doing? And um, I think over the last year in my current role, I've, I've found space to test those ideas a little bit more, reflect on. I think when you're going through your career, you kind of, you're always looking to the next thing, right? I'm going to fix this problem. I'm going to win the next bit of work. Or I'm going to get the next job and I'm going to go and do that. And I'm, you know, you're, you're in a constant state of, mild overwhelm <laughs> and uh, I think it's really it's been really useful to me just to spend a bit of time reflecting on my own experience and the things I've learned from other people and almost trying to structure it in my own head um, that has obviously resulted in generating a fair amount of prose but to a certain extent I don't really care where that prose goes or if it's ever particularly you know useful it, it's been useful to me just that process of trying to structure structure one's thoughts. I, I would definitely encourage more. I think we need more space for people to do that. Well, and, and one of the things that strikes me hearing you speak about that is the kind of, in the structuring, it's the storytelling of, of what you're doing and where you're going. And I, I you're very active on things like LinkedIn. Too active. <laughs> posting about bits and pieces. But one of them is the kind of visualization of story of information so I don't mean visualization like oh here's a bar chart but mm. the kind of Edward Tuft like how do I communicate something with meaning and impact yeah. on people and have you has your experience of, of sort of reflecting on what you're thinking about and how you think about it and, and what it means uh, is that linked to that storytelling aspect of what what you see yeah I think you need a you need a narrative and there aesthetics are an important part of the narrative, right? Um, I've been calling him Tufty. Well, yeah, sorry. I've only ever, I have to confess, I've actually only ever seen it written down. I'm so not I... sure if I've heard it. So one of us is right. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I'm a huge fan of uh, Edward Tuft or Edward Tufty. Yeah. I think because he, um, you know, the man gets down to like how to structure paragraphs, right? It's in a weird way, almost the ultimate expression of style over substance in the in a from a tufty perspective doesn't matter what's in the paragraphs as long as the paragraphs are the right shape yeah um but i think that's that's a really important aspect of things is certainly working in organizations that are relatively low maturity in terms of data awareness um it's just as important how you structure the narrative as the narrative itself you have to be, we were talking about this the other day, you have to be really careful about the lexicon you use and which 
words you use, right? So there is in this industry, and particularly in the digital aspect of this industry, a lot of acronyms and buzzwords floating around your CDEs, your BIMs, your digital twins. There's nothing wrong with any of those phrases individually. But what you can't do, in my opinion, is swim in the soup without discerning <laughs> kind of, you almost have to pick, cherry pick your own lexicon, right? So I was talking the other day about how this year, I've deliberately not used the phrase digital twin, yep. not because I don't believe in digital twins, but because I think particularly within an organization that's just finding its feet, there's simpler ways of describing the aspects of digital twins that they actually need at that point in time, right? So they don't need advanced four-dimensional simulations. They need data management. They need data definitions. They need some sort of common data environment to store that stuff in, and that's that's a less exciting conversation, <laughs> but it, it's the conversation that you need to have at a certain point in time, right? And and also by not swimming in the in the nomenclature, you're also avoiding the kind of well the thing we measure is do we have one? Yeah, like you're know, like what what we're actually trying to achieve is an outcome or a or, or a benefit or an improvement, as opposed to being like well the goal is we need a digital twin. Do we have a digital twin? Yes, it sits over there. It's very pretty. Thank <laughs> yeah. you. I've got one in blue. Um, and I wonder if actually that what you measure is that part of the problem more generally in the built environment? Because why why do you think it is that the built environment is less mature? Because all of us, like you say, in our day to day lives are surrounded by technology. Our lives have been transformed by by the things we have. Why is it that some sectors just seem to? Well, I'm going to say it, our laggards seemingly in the yeah. adoption of this stuff. And and that's what I was trying to figure out. And I haven't come up with a single answer to that. So I made a slide that I eventually posted in LinkedIn that was a list of all of the the ailments, as it were, the, the, the obstacles to adopting digital in the built environment. And one of my colleagues made the entirely reasonable point that none of those ailments is unique to the built environment. But I think the combination of those elements is possibly unique or possibly quite unique. Um, and we could we could sit here and diagnose till the cows come home, but some of the ones that have really stuck with me, just in the sense that they've resonated with my own experience, are things like the built environment doesn't generate a huge volume of data all the time, mm -hmm. with the exception of IoT, potentially, but the the variety of data that is used on a standard built environment project is perhaps broader than you would experience elsewhere. Yeah. So... I'm probably talking out of my comfort zone here because I don't have a whole lot of private sector experience, but my sense is that a lot of um, kind of business to consumer uh, businesses exist in a structured data world. You know, if you've got your ERP system sorted out or your CRM system sorted out, you're probably in a good place. You know, we did it all with Salesforce, brilliant. And that's been my experience of being sold to by those kind of vendors is they've optimized for managing structured data in a particular way, which is really, really cool and effective and awesome but unfortunately so much of our information is manifest in data sources that they're just not comfortable with so try and tell salesforce that 50 percent of your information is in documents yep you know of which 20 percent is they're literally just scans they're not even text readable you'd need to get some ocr in there to, to extract them oh and by the way we've got these 3d models and we've got all these point clouds and we've got this gis platform that someone built 20 years ago um and all of a sudden, you're in a world where those standard COPS products, which we should 
100% be inspiring to use, don't quite fit the range of needs and the range of data that the built environment has. Um, I think the other aspect of that is within that huge varied set of information, there is some really, really crucial data in there. You know, I, I cut my teeth in this industry working on data about tunnels and bridges for network rail and trying to answer really simple questions such as according to our definition of what constitutes a bridge versus what constitutes a tunnel, how many bridges do we have and how many tunnels do we have and where are they? And I think ultimately that's a few kilobytes worth of information, you know, 17,000 odd bridges that we needed to categorize, but it's super dense, super crucial information. Mm. Like that is in many cases, potentially a matter of life and death, depending on, you know, whether one sale is filled out or not. So there's a real kind of spread of data and a real depth of very specific, very crucial information that's there to keep people safe, keep keep the country working. Um, I could go on. There's there's something really interesting going on to me about the the confluence of historical organizations in this industry. You know, we're still one of the few we're, we're an industry that's trying to adopt technology, but so many of our professional institutions were founded in the Victorian era. And whilst they have obviously evolved, still very much reflect a concept of what the specialisms in construction and built environment should be, yeah. according to some guy in a top hat in 1835, right? Um, and so in a way that we've kind of got all this hot, uh, history and optimization within those silos, uh, and not a whole lot of optimization across those silos. And you can see that in the way we handle data, you know. Quantity surveyors have very strong opinions about how cost breakdown structures should be done. Yep. You know, planners have very strong opinions about work breakdown structures. I haven't met the group of people that have very strong opinions about how those two things should be yep. knitted together, apart from <laughs> a, a number of people in, in digital built Britain world. Yeah, uh, I could go on, but those are the kind of idiosyncrasies that makes working in this space so interesting and bloody challenging when you're trying to bring off-the-shelf scalable white label software and actually derive value in that space. I think it's fascinating. One of the things that you, you've touched on there is that for me about this built environment sector is this juxtaposition around time that you know, you've got these institutions that go back to the Victorian era at Network Rail, you're working on bridges and tunnels mm. and sidings, some of which will have been cut during the Victorian era, yeah. or and and over the over the preceding 150 years have been updated and moved and whatever else. Well, obviously not moved for a bridge or a tunnel, but you know the the components. Um, and similarly, the stuff that we're building today, or modifying, or adapting, or has a life cycle that goes forward, you know, another 100 years or 150 years. So you have this like, oh, the now of technology and digital mm. in a continuum of the built environment that you know, when we're talking about net zero or, or trying to uh, achieve net zero with our society, the built environment, like, by 2050, 80%, something like there's some. I've been given a number of numbers, but somewhere between 75% and 85% of all the stuff we'll have in 2050 already exists. Yeah, yeah. You pre replace, what, 1% of the stock every year or yeah. something. And potentially we should be replacing far less, yeah. given the carbon <laughs> impact of that, right? So, especially in your role at the Houses of Parliament, this idea of how you marry the, the nowness of what we can do right now with technology or data or information with the longitudinal aspects of 
what you're working with historically and how long it needs to last. Hmm. Dealing with those different time frames must be a challenge or or at least an interesting conundrum. I think it's one of the areas where taking a data mindset versus a technology mindset is useful, right? And I think to a lot of people that in itself might sound a bit splitting hairs, like I'm a data person, not a technology person. Yep. But to me, looking at a project, be it parliament or HS2 or, or any sort of particularly civil infrastructure, whatever technology solution you implement today is going to be replaced long before the that asset even begins to come to the end of its life cycle, right? But the data concepts that you're modeling in those technologies will remain broadly similar. In fact, that that's to me one of the grounding things here is, as you say, a bridge that we build today versus a bridge that we built 50 years ago versus 150 years ago. Yeah, there's been some there's clearly been some novel engineering technologies in between, but it's fundamentally the same thing, right? So the influence that we're having on those assets is is through how we, from from a digital perspective, is is not through the nature of the a- asset itself, but how we work around that asset, how we relate to that asset, how we use that asset. Um, and I think that is going back to the challenges. One of the, the things that's made it difficult is, yeah, we've we've had these assets for a long time. We, how, how how do you articulate what's different about it's still going to be a bridge, but it's a bridge that's managed in a five-dimensional, you know, digital twin way versus a bridge that looks exactly the same that's still managed in paper records. It, it doesn't feel tangible to people what difference you're making there. But it, you and I know that it is potentially a highly tangible difference because of all the, the wasted resource and rework and loss of information that's implicit in one system versus the other, or at least it should be. And that... That piece around rework and loss of information, I've heard you speak previously about the kind of marginal gains aspect. You know, it's not that if we adopt a different approach or a more data-centric approach, suddenly bridges are going to be fundamentally different to look at. It's that atomization of of impact that, yes, but all these little bits were improved. I I remember speaking to Colin Everson at Bam Nuttall, uh, who was like, his big frustration was that the cost of laying a brick hasn't changed Mm. and not just the cost of the guy putting the mortar down and the brick but everything around it and the management of it and so on that you know he'd been in the industry for decades and just they hadn't it just hadn't changed yeah do you see the impact of data as being those marginal like an an accumulative marginal change or are there big kind of ziggurat step changes Mm. as as we move along so the the benchmark that we're paying for resources changes because the baseline productivity of human beings in most countries, including even this one sometimes, is, has has changed light years since 50 years ago, 100 years ago, right? So you're still paying someone to lay bricks, but you're paying them substantially more because that person could be, I don't know, working in a startup or, you know, acting as an, a lawyer or something, you know, there's there's all these competing opportunity costs to people's time. So that as a consequence, if the actions and the activities that we're taking are not changing, then we're going to be losing ground and paying by default paying more for the same thing. Mm. And I think that's important to keep in mind when we think about why why do things keep getting more expensive? Why does HS2 cost many, many billions of pounds when it, you know, decades ago would have cost a fraction of that? It's it's not because we're necessarily getting worse. It's because everyone else is getting better 
and we still have to compete for talent. So I think in that context, the incremental benefit that digital should be looking to make is respecting the value of people's time, right? We all spend in this industry a disproportionate amount of our time trying to find citation needed, but trying to find the information that we need in order to do our jobs. Partly that's because, as we've already discussed, it's scattered in all these different formats. So you're very rarely dealing with a single source of truth. You're usually looking at a wide range of different repositories, some of which may still be analog, right? And then we haven't given people the tools to then aggregate that information and make sense of it in a way that, that augments their abilities. We're still basically employing people based on the heuristics that they've learned from these professional organizations that have existed for a hundred years. We're asking them to apply those heuristics using a assorted sort of subset of information that they have easily to hand. To a certain extent, we're only asking them to provide information to the extent that they it justifies the heuristic decision that they've already made. And then we're asking why we're not taking advantage of information in this or, you know, in this in the sector, right? So it's everything's a subset of what is possible. And it feels like by broadening the information that's available to people and by broadening their ability to make use of it quickly, we are going to be able to respect their time better. I think often the the conversation is framed as if we're trying to replace human decision making with algorithmic decision making. I, I don't think that's what we're trying to do. There's always going to be room for heuristics in this industry, but it needs to be heuristics that's more easily complemented by explicit knowledge. So one of the most important things that I've ever read about on Wikipedia, I'm not going to like pretend I went into some sort of scientific journal, is, is the, the knowledge creation cycle, the Nanaka's, Nanaka's work where you have tacit information that lives in people's heads, which is then externalized out to systems. And there's friction there, right, in terms of handheld mobile devices and typing things into databases. That external information is then analyzed and then needs to be internalized back into the tacit knowledge because people are always, almost always in the physical world going to be in the loop somewhere. So mm. we can only condense and action that insight that comes from an explicit world by getting it back into people's heads. When I joined this industry, the way of doing that was getting people to fill out forms on clunky databases that often didn't actually allow them to express the information in a way that made sense to them, either because there wasn't proper validation rules or it was all drop-down boxes and there's no free text or whatever. Collating that information in a BI report or a dashboard and then almost like waving it at them and saying like, look, this graph says you're doing something wrong or you're behind schedule or you haven't considered X, Y, and Z. Why don't you do better? So in, in all points of those that cycle, you're introducing friction and you're not making information available to people in a way that's actually congruent with their experience. So the information that comes back to them is framed as a challenge to their tacit knowledge rather than something that complements their tacit knowledge. One of the things that's got me really excited about generative AI, and I know everyone's excited about it, but in thinking about how, how can this technology, which still appears very consumer focused, actually help to solve our problems is it makes that interface between computer and human much more naturalistic. It's mm -hmm. a conversation, it's a dialogue with something that appears intelligent rather than a graph or a chart that, or a report that's being waved at them by someone, by a manager or a manager's manager <laughs> yeah. in, in, a, in a meeting. 
I think that re could potentially reduce the friction between the, of the internalization of knowledge from the explicit world into the tacit world. It should accelerate the ability for people to both express what they're seeing on the ground, for that to be consumed and processed analytically and then expressed back to them with the, the wisdom that comes from having gone through the same cycle with thousands of other people, you know, across across the world. That's we're getting into techno utopian land, well, but I, th I think that's kind of, if we're going to see a step change, it's going to be the result of a lot of incremental investment in the, the different aspects of the knowledge cycle that I've described, plus potentially something extremely transformative in, in the adoption of technologies that are coming down the road anyway, and which have nothing to do with the built environment, but which we can adapt to meet the built environment's needs. Across a number of sectors, we've seen uh, the Harvard Business Review has, for a number of years, looked at how long it takes knowledge workers to access information. Mm. Right? Is the information accessible? Uh, and by knowledge workers, it's really anyone who needs information to yeah. do their stuff. Um, and it's 50% of their time is wasted. It's a statistic. And it's been almost completely consistent for like a decade mm. that it's always 50% of your time is spent just trying to find what you need. So you end up even more post-rationalizing like, okay, well, I'm going to make a decision and then I'll try and find a piece of information which says, yes, that was the decision the yeah. decision I should. Can I can I just come in on that? I think part of the... You're familiar with induced demand? No, I don't think so. The idea that you can't, like, it's kind of an urban planning idea that when you build new roads or when you widen highways, you reduce the journey time, more people drive yeah. until the point where the highway is just as busy as it was before you expanded it, only there's more cars. Right, right? yep, yeah. okay. Really important concept shows why cities like London in general work better than Los Angeles, for example. Nothing against Los Angeles, but it's not a nice place to be at Russia. Yeah. Um, I think what you're alluding to might be we've almost done a similar thing with access to information in the sense that we used to have filing cabinets. Yep. We've created digital filing cabinets that from a user interface perspective are very similar to the real thing, only... We've slightly reduced the friction for creating and filing documents by making them electronic, but we're still spending the same amount of time because A, the user interface hasn't meaningfully changed. It's just on a screen now rather than a cabinet. And B, that reduction in friction has been compensated for by just creating more files and documents. So you're now searching through a bigger asset base of documents to find what you need. You're taking just as much time as when you just had a cabinet you could look at. And, and it's fascinating that on the induced demand, is that because mm. I, I was aware of the I hadn't, I hadn't heard the phrase um, that you also have that aspect of okay, so we're now creating more documents. In some cases, for lots of people, and it comes back to your generative AI point, it's actually harder to scroll through and find what you're looking for because where you used to be able to go to a filing cabinet and sort of rapidly flick through them mm. and scan pages and be like, is this the one I'm looking for? Yeah, yeah, this is the one I want. Um, and then you have the kind of Yes, they're now all filed perfectly, and some uh, information designer has said, this is the file structure that we'll use, and isn't it perfect? And if it's not how your brain works or how you would have personally stored the information, you end up with the kind of, 
okay, well, now I don't yeah. I don't even know where to begin looking. Which file do I click exactly. on first? And then you take a copy of the document, put it in your own filing system, because now it's really easy to take copies and create new files. You don't have to go and buy paper. <laughs> yeah. No one needs to use a photocopier. No one needs to buy a filing cabinet. And it's invisible because it's not like, hey, Ian, why have you got this parallel filing cabinet next to your desk? It's just <laughs> I've got a laptop like everybody does. Well, and, and that was the second thing that struck me when you were talking about the knackers because this is another phrase no knacker no knacker yeah um uh that that loop there was that i think we've seen in a number of industries that that because you end up having the tacit knowledge becoming explicit and then being waved in your face by a manager everyone comes to accept that all that information is frankly a bit bullshit like Mm. it it, it, like everyone knows that isn't right yeah and everyone knows it isn't an accurate reflection so you end up with these shadow parallel versions where oh yeah what we actually do is we write it on a yeah we write some key numbers on a whiteboard or we you know Mm. i have my own copy Uh, i was talking to someone in the healthcare sector just last week who said this is exactly what happens you you have all the systems and then the nurses all have post-it notes that is what they're actually using to exchange information and so on so you end up with these really inefficient parallel systems but i also was struck on the kind of how do you avoid the techno utopia by the way you're talking about the way incremental things building up and then parallel things coming together and that and that can give you a step change and i i don't know if you've heard of the concept of the second half of the chessboard that someone someone was talking to me the other day who said and apparently it's an old um fable about how uh, someone did service for the emperor and the emperor said, how do you want to be rewarded? Or is this the rice thing? Yeah, and it was like a grain of rice and I want it to double on every square of a chessboard. Mm. And and for the entire first half of the chessboard, it looks like you're not getting anywhere. Like, you know, yeah, it's doubling, but really nothing much is happening. And then by the last square of the chessboard, you'd have a pile of rice that was bigger than Everest. Mm. And, And the transition happens at about the halfway point where it suddenly you're going... Oh hell! Like this is this oh, is a right. massive quantity of rice. But is in this demand, or that equivalent? If you don't, it shows that if you don't change your ways of working, that doesn't transpire. Yeah. Right. You're always in the first half. Yeah. Because people, we're not adjusting our behaviors to reflect the tools that we're being given. Our tools are just replicating processes that shouldn't necessarily be replicated. And I don't want to live in the first half of the chessboard. I do want that pile of rice. That's well, bigger than, I, I, I just haven't seen it happen, and yeah, that's part of what's bothering me, right? And I, I certainly don't want to keep keep repeating the first because when you were talking about the different nomenclature as well, um, and I think the kind of you know, the the tech techno utopia offset by the future fatigue thing of someone turns up with a new chessboard and goes, no, wait, let's mm, start this one, exactly, and yeah. bear, bear with us for the first half because the second half is going to be great, yeah. And you never get there. You know, yeah. some other constraint comes in. And you go, okay, new chessboard. And it's not rice this time, it's lentils. And you're yeah. like, okay, dude, like, just how, how do we get to the second half? Because we're not thinking about what it is about humans that, you know, this is why we can't have nice things. It's something <laughs> about humans that ruin, in the nicest possible way, well-intentioned technology. You know, we've seen this with email, right? Email is the bane of everyone's life now because it's reduced friction, but there's been no commensurate change in working practices. We're going to see the same thing with Slack and Teams and whatever comes after it is the easier we make it for people to just fire information at each other in an unstructured way, the more information is generated and therefore the savings that you would get from the 
loss of friction evaporate in in just the the the, the quantity of information that's created. And I say this as someone that loves using Teams and, yeah. and hates email, <laughs> but I can see a point in ten years' time where I'm like, oh god, Teams is the worst. Thank God. We've got these neural links that allow yep. us to talk to each other telepathically now. That will make everything better. And it won't. It won't because you've just reduced the friction without changing how you work. Yeah. And I think technologies such as neural networks, I'm probably just jumping on the hype train here, but they're a fundamental change in user interface. You're going from a replicating, however cleverly, um, is cleverly a word? Replicating however intelligently filing cabinets in, into a digital world to actually we have a different way of processing information and the user interface is conversation, right? And I think th without something, some sort of game changer like that, you're just going to be making yesterday's mistake over and over again, reinforced. And that's not a problem that's unique to the built environment, but it's reinforced by the, the culture in the built environment of specialisms, that focus on review cycles and assessments and assurance and, and, and you know, a document is only valid or worthwhile when a when an engineer has signed it off, which is important and, and when neglected causes problems, golden thread, etc. But I, I don't think it gets us to a point where we can actually internalize and utilize information better. I think it just, it, it, you know, in the nicest possible way, it gives us a better audit trail. Yeah. And maybe gives us a little bit more accountability, but at the expense of consuming huge amounts of human resource in perpetuity, where where the gap between their lived experience as a consumer versus their lived experience as an employee becomes bigger and bigger, um, and that can be quite dispiriting, right? For sure, and and I think that audit trail means you end up doing everything, trying to manage it through a rear view mirror, right? It's mm. like you know, did we record it all? Do we have the numbers from last month, last week, last quarter, last year? what does that tell us about the future? And and the answer is not not very much. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that doesn't help us at all. Yeah. I, I worry that when bad things happen, if the lesson we take is that no one wrote anything down, that's, I, I, that may well be the case in some instances, but I, I, my gut feel is in most instances, people were writing things down, but they weren't writing things down where they were accessible. There was no, yep. there was no intelligent agent overlooking the system and saying, hey, there doesn't seem to be a connection between what your panel manufacturer think they're doing versus what your safety inspector thinks they're looking for. There, there's a gap there, right? And, and I think that's true. I think that is absolutely true. I, like, I passionately believe that. And I think um, we were talking to um, someone in the, the public sector space around the moral need for data sharing mm -hmm. for things like major incidences and major case reviews, all of which have for the last 10 15 years come back and said yeah great like we've looked we've looked at it all the information existed mm. but it wasn't being shared so yeah. people had made notes people had captured information but it wasn't being shared and as a result timely information wasn't wasn't being done and and in the public sector sense but i guess this is where the the ontology question comes out in the or whatever you want to call it, is you can share all the information you want, but if you haven't defined any sort of shared meaning, you are just creating. Yeah. You're just creating more noise, right? A absolutely. And I, I think that's why your comment about the loop, both in terms of the mechanics of it, and it, it might be how do we share meaning, how do we share understanding, what are the commons that we're working with, and how do we provide that for humans so that it makes sense to them and, and, and they understand it 
but also that they recognise it's true because the moment someone says, oh, I don't think that rings, you know, I, I don't think that piece of information you're giving me is a right and accurate reflection of the way the way that I believe mm. the loop should have worked. Yeah. You end up with resistance and then it becomes very easy to hand wave stuff, even that is right and accurate, but with a kind of, oh, yeah, well, that's that's nonsense. Yeah. I think going back to my bridge example at NetRL, one of the things that became apparent to me really early on was we were asking specialists to go out and look at these assets and and telling them what information they should provide back, like height, width, has it got cracks, is it going to fall over, that, that sort of thing. But we weren't giving them any opportunity to feedback on A, whether the information they were given as a baseline was wrong, apart from like emailing their boss, or very much freedom to presumably because the technologies weren't there to interpret it at that time at scale really much opportunity to say what else had been we should have been asking what else had been missed yeah um so that we weren't giving these apparently specialist people the respect to generate their own information presumably because we weren't confident that in a structured information world we could process it and one, one of my one of the things i haven't been able to figure out in in my career and that pains me greatly and i, I hope someone can tell me how to do this is create projects that intent with the intent of defining shared meaning in a way that doesn't become an extremely bureaucratic and academic exercise mm -hmm. so I, I when i look at an ontology i see the opportunity there of actually what, what is an ontology if not an accumulation of mind maps right and mm -hmm. um, you don't have to be a data scientist or a philosopher to sit down and say these are some concepts that I've got in my head. Here's how they're related to each other. So the opportunity to me is that you have a user interface there that's intuitive to people. They can they can sketch out or review how the world appears to them in an abstracted but logical way. And then you can take those heuristics and accumulate them using exactly the same technology in a way that reflects the logic of the overall organization. And then you can present it back to them again in a meaningful way that allows them to interrogate that and make sense of it and feedback where it's wrong. So it feels like all the components are there to create shared meaning, but it's bloody difficult to do that in practice. And if I may, from my perspective, I think one of the one of the failings is actually the lack of understanding of humans. I mean, you use the phrase, this is why you can't have nice things. And one of them is that I think some of the projects I've seen around this all start with the right intention and say, okay, well, let's start capturing how do people logically think about things and where do they sit together? And then at some point in the aggregation of them, as you go up the organization or as you go across a sector mm. or whatever, someone starts to say, okay, and now this is the right way to do it. Right. And you, and so as a result, you've done this very human thing of saying, well, how would you interpret the information? How would you classify it? And then at some point you go, and now you're wrong. Mm. And actually in order to get kind of some level of commonality, what we're actually gonna do is we have to impose it. Yeah. And I was talking to uh, Damon Crowley-Sweet, who you used to work with, uh, I believe, back in the day. Oh, yeah. Um, and we were talking about this, and he used the example, which I thought was excellent, about that isn't how humans work. I mean, if they did, then Esperanto would have mm. taken off, right? You'd, you've looked at it, you've gone to everyone and said, okay, well, how, you know, what do you struggle to pronounce and how do you put words together and how do you, how do, you do verbs and, and so on? And then you say, right, here's one that will work for everyone. Mm. Here you go, everybody, Esperanto. Yeah. And other than a terrible Bill Shatner film, um, like, you know, it didn't take off. And because everyone was like, actually, my language helps 
with how I think, how I express myself, how I interpret the world, how the world is interpreted for me. It has lots of meaning and resonance for me. I don't want to use some new imposed way of doing it. Yeah. And I do I do wonder if that kind of we start from the right place and then at some point you fall back into the behaviors of well someone has to sign this off and it has hmm. to be the right way of doing it and then we're going to push it back down on you yeah. and say do it this way at which point you fall back into the trap of having shadow versions of stuff. Yeah. Is there a way of tolerating the fuzziness that's inherent in life but then flagging where the fuzziness becomes so profound that there's clearly been a divergence that warrants some attention to determine whether that divergence is valid or is problematic, right? Yeah, and and I think I think there definitely are. I mean, there are ways of uh, linking ontology. Yeah, so rather than saying we need one ontology, you can link them. Hmm. There's some research being done right now about inference, so you can say, well, you in this ontology uses this concept and this, and we think they're the same yeah. thing. Like, and we're going to flag and say, and it doesn't mean we need to overwrite either. We just say. You're using telegraph pole and you're using pole. Yeah. And we think from conceptually where they sit in the rest of the ontologies, you're talking about the same thing. Yeah. So we're just going to create like little linked pieces. I haven't seen a user interface that can deal with the structure of an ontology, but also bring that fluidity to it to that thing. No, I, maybe, maybe you're telling me you've got one. But... <laughs> no, no. I, but I think, but I think there are the pieces out there to enable it to be possible. And I, yeah. And I think that for me a bit like uh, generative AI and the piece you were making there. I think that there are these incremental steps. You know, people do need to start thinking about the ontologies or whatever, or the structure for themselves and or their organizations. And then I think there are things coming that are then saying, well, and we can cope with the fuzziness and complexity of the world as, as we live in it rather than as we would like it to be. Yeah. So that, you know, that's something I'm going back and forth on is whether I've seen a lot of LinkedIn posts about, you know, particularly with that Google fellow retiring and saying AI is dangerous. I've seen people saying this proves that we need human meaning in our AI. You know, you, you can let it be as powerful as you want, but it needs to be constrained by some sort of ontological or semantic set of definitions that is human legible. And I, I see a lot of, um, I, I'm very sympathetic with that point of view. But on the other hand, I'm I'm thinking actually it's that it's that human, as you've been referencing, that human impulse to standardize that makes everything rigid and stops it evolving with the world. Isn't it beautiful that you can have a, an AI managing your ontology and you never really have to look at it because it's updated in a Bayesian sense mm. through the inputs of human beings telling the AI, I don't agree with this, and, and the AI is incorporating that into how it, it weighs or you know, unweighs elements of the neural network that sits behind it so you, almost that inscrutability forces us not to try and standardize you can't standardize the neural network because you can't see it what you can do is provide feedback where it doesn't make sense and use it in an intuitive way when it does make sense and i those feel like two very different views of the world potentially depending on how much you trust the ai to, <laughs> to do it ethically and properly and sustainably yeah. Um, and I, I'm, I'm probably bouncing between those two worldviews without really knowing which is right. For me personally, I think they're probably actually on a spectrum. And I think there are principles rather than laws that you, you need to be able to reference. Yeah. But what, I, I, what I don't want to do is spend, let's all get together as a public sector and spend £100 million perfecting our ontology only for some data science kid to come along and be like, I could have done that in 10 minutes if you just 
switched on the switched on the <laughs> AI and let it digest all your files, you know. Yeah, and and I think and I think some of it is is cracking on, and it, I know you're not sitting down and having the kind of theological debates about mm. the sex of the angels, but actually saying, okay, well, let's try and do some of it, and what can we do, and how does it, you know, and, and, and where does it work, and and how does it work, and I. I've not thought of this before, but listening to you speak, I do think there are parallels with some of the lexography type pieces where there, for some uses, you refer to the kind of OED type gold standard of mm. this is a word and it's been defined and it's got a different. And then you can you kind of have progressive levels of like, oh, and here are some more crowdsourced ones or yeah. here are some interpretive okay. ones. And then way down at the bottom, you've got like, well, me and my mates know what we mean by yeah. this. And, you know, certainly in my school, there were school specific words that had a meaning and everyone at that level understood what they meant but you wouldn't write them in an essay and you wouldn't include yeah. them in a in a public debate and you kind of have some external authority that that you is appropriate for different levels of communication or different yeah. levels of, of of report you need the dictionary and the urban dictionary yeah and this is all extremely intuitive and makes sense until you sit down and think how do we actually implement this so I'm convinced that there's some amount of, you know, to use Mark Enzer's word, the commons that we need to generate here. We need some minimum viable product of this is a shared meaning model for the built environment or for for infrastructure that's written in human legible terms. So it builds on the incredibly complicated and presumably quite brilliant work that people like Matthew West have been doing to generate formal ontologies for the industry. But it presents it in a way that you could show a field operative a mind map version and it would seem somewhat intuitive to them I, I think we need that core capability but how to scale it in the way that you've described is a really difficult question and, and potentially one that we need to just we whoever we is we need to sit down and figure out before we generate a whole bunch of unnecessary artifacts that are never going to be maintained yep. or before we let artificial intelligence loose in that vacuum <laughs> and realize that it's coming back with absolute spurious hallucinogenic nonsense that is actually sending us back in the wrong direction. Yeah. I, I think that's eminently sensible. And and let's do it. <laughs> yeah. Well and, and I think I think part of it is that when when we think about these things, which is why I like Davin's use of um languages as mm. an exemplar, is that it's not the complete decentralization or atomization. So it's not like everyone has their own individual language. Mm. So in the same way you're saying the built environment or infrastructure might have a commons, you say, okay, great, like, that's French. Mm. Like, you know, and, and yeah, come together and there are some bits that are formalized and, and you know, a minimum yeah. of how we do things and word ordering and, and, and so on. Um, but don't then say, and we're going to get it so right that everyone yeah. will need to speak French. You say, okay, yeah. well, the health sector, and how do we create the Babelfish moments saying well there'll be points where these people in the built environment need to speak to these people in transport or healthcare yeah. or defense or whatever it is and can they talk to each exactly. other exactly and having tried to do a little bit of that for literally just culverts between <laughs> roads and rail and the environment agency you know there's a lifetime in figuring out that translation for culverts alone yeah. at least going back to the the earlier points about the cost of labor, it's not going to be economically feasible to do that entirely through intelligent people sitting down and creating oh, yeah. models. There needs to be some degree of automation for that for to work. For sure, for sure. And 
gone down a rabbit hole here. Yeah, a little we? bit, but yeah. and and but an important one, right? I mean, I think I think this is an important piece about how we share meaning and understand meaning and and benefit from it. Are there other things around the data world? And I like your distinction between data and technology that are exciting you or occupying you or <laughs> or stressing you at the moment. I think getting the basics right has been exciting trying to find the absolute most minimum use cases that can be justified um, and having to go back to square one of let's not all accept that BIM for example is a good unto itself like even BIM has to has to pay its own rent at some point I think that's that's been a really interesting challenge um, balancing that with the excitement of having this sense of a target state in terms of some of the problems that we're facing now, the logistics and the, the information density required to deliver them efficiently. And I think the restoration of the Houses of Parliament is a decent example of this. It's going to be very difficult to do that using kind of existing spreadsheet paper-based methods. You need some degree of logistics optimization, combining a sense of space with a sense of sequence and time for that to work. I think that's a really exciting proposition because it forces you to get out of your silos and actually say, how do we combine our two different sets of information in a way that's actually going to allow us to execute on this? Um, yeah, I think it, it's those marginal gains through combination of skills rather than marginal gains within skills yep. that excites me. I don't necessarily want to wake up in the morning and figure out a way of making Primavera P6 like 1% better <laughs> for planning stuff. I want to sit and figure out how we take information out of that system and combine it with risk or cost or space and actually deliver against the outcomes of a complicated project or a complex project. Excellent. And then figure out how to explain that back to people that don't want to hear it. Not, not my colleagues, but just the professions of, I'm a QS, all I care about is QSing leave me alone with your why should I care about data from other people yeah. <laughs> conversation. Excellent. In uh, this has been great. I've, I've really enjoyed it. Likewise. Thanks so much to our guest, Ian. Uh, Ian has a book that he's writing with Neil Thompson. Uh, if you know Neil, um, Look out for updates on that on LinkedIn, and it is well worth following Ian on LinkedIn. Really, really interesting points, really challenging stuff. Do look out for him there. Thank you to Runway Studios for hosting us today. The Arctics Podcast is a Snaffle podcast production. Thank you to Joe Davis for the graphics. And if you know the story of an inspiring human or someone that would like to come on and talk about how technology and people are being brought together, do get in touch with us. Podcast at iotics.com. Until next time, thank you.